0: Verse 29, the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Stop right there. The Lamb of God is not a term of endearment. This is not John saying, any precious. <laughs> Behold, Jesus, he's such a sweet little lamb. Stop not what he's saying. By definition, the Lamb of God anticipated a premeditated sacrifice. When John called out Jesus as the as the Lamb of God, every Jew listening would have completely understood what he was saying, at least the picture that was being drawn. Wait a minute, Lamb of God? What do we do with lambs of God? We kill them. We sacrifice them. That's what a lamb of God is. Go back to the very first lamb even mentioned or referred to in the Bible. He was sacrificed. Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And we know the lamb was sacrificed because it was the lamb and his fat portions. The fat portions would have had to have been cut out. Abel sacrificed a lamb. And what about that amazing prophetic symbol that anticipated the premeditated sacrifice of Jesus on Mount Moriah? Isaac and Abraham. On that same mount, Genesis 22.7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine being Abraham in that moment? Knowing that God had called you to walk your son up the side of the mountain and sacrifice him. And by the way, Isaac was probably about 30. He was not a little boy. You gotta take your son up the side of this mountain and sacrifice him there. And you get up there and you got the fire and you got the wood and you're preparing the altar and he goes, Dad, where's the lamb? Abraham responded with amazing faith. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering my son don't think for a moment this wasn't tearing Abraham's heart out we know this because the very first time the word love is used in the Bible it's used right there where God says take your son Isaac your only son whom you love and sacrifice him so Abraham and Isaac are up there on the mountain and Abraham says God will provide a lamb did he? Bible students think it through Genesis 22, did He provide a lamb? No. No, He provided a ram. Well, that's okay, a lamb, a ram, whatever. It's close, they rhyme, right? We can go either way. God did provide a lamb. What Abraham spoke in that moment was prophetic of Jesus wasn't just a a false hope that perhaps, maybe, somehow God will provide a lamb for sacrifice. No, He provided a ram for that sacrifice but God would provide a lamb. Behold, the Lamb of the world. Jesus Christ. In the context here of John's testimony the, the Lamb of the world the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world that sacrificial lamb is deeply woven into the entire Jewish law. Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb, Leviticus 1 through 5, all of the offerings, the sacrifices that are pictures of Jesus, every one of them, all revealed in Jesus, verse 30, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, and for the second time he repeats, for he existed before me. And then John says, I didn't recognize him but so that he might be manifested to Israel I came baptizing in water. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 Peter tells us that none of the Hebrew prophets knew who Messiah was going to be and up to the moment of Jesus baptism that included John the Baptist. Among the Hebrew prophets he did not know who Jesus was. Maybe you struggle with that. He had to know Jesus. They were like second cousins, man. Mary and Elizabeth were, were relatives, right? And then Mary had John six months later. Or, sorry, Elizabeth had John six months later. Mary gives birth to Jesus. You know the women got together. You know the kids were at least in a play group or something. John and Jesus had to know each other. John knew Jesus. But he didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah until the moment of recognition. Hold that thought before we get to that. One last thing. I said I wouldn't say any more about baptism. I just got to tell you this. John explains here his baptismal ministry very clearly. Verse 31, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. What does that mean? John's saying my baptism is symbolic, albeit temporary. It's a symbolic washing of hearts to prepare the people for Messiah. To wash, as it were, enough of the people so that as the kingdom is coming, we have people whose hearts are cleaned up and ready to receive. That was the point of John's ministry. How do you get ready for guests you know, to come to your house? I was, I was talking to uh, Glenn earlier about this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to change this a little because I don't want to call anybody out. But I was thinking about how we receive people. And when someone comes over for dinner or comes to your house, you don't stand at the back of the house. I mean, unless they're, they're real good friends and, you're, and you know they're coming over. Door's unlocked, you know, come on in. But if it's someone that you're meeting for the first time or someone that you're a special guest that you're having over for dinner, you meet them at the door and you walk them in. John met the people of Israel at the door. That's what he was doing in his baptism and, and at his ministry. But it reminds me of a family circus Comic that I once saw. It's one of my favorite ones. And it's, it's, you know, the family circus, the little circle things and the kids and all that. The mom is pulling a vacuum cleaner out of the closet. And little Jeffy looks up and and is saying, we're having people over for dinner! (laughs) Because apparently the only time the vacuum cleaner came out was when people were coming to dinner. What do you do to get ready for the coming of Jesus? See, John was a voice in the wilderness. And as we talked about Sunday, so are we. So are we. How are you preparing for Jesus' next visit? What are you doing? How are you getting ready? And how are you standing to receive not only Jesus, but any guests that might come into His house before He comes? Verse 32. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and He remained upon Him. I did not recognize Him, but He who sent Me to baptize in water said to Me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I Myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The moment of recognition... For John, it was at the baptism of Jesus. It wasn't even until the baptism of Jesus. It was in the moment when Jesus came up out of the water and the Spirit descended upon him as a dove. In that moment, John was like, I get it! He's the guy! It's him! Behold! And the next day, behold, the Lamb of the world. Lamb of God that takes away the sin. Of, he's not the Lamb of the world. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, he got it. The moment of recognition. And what's interesting is John doesn't tell the story. John the Apostle. Of the four Gospels, his is the only one that doesn't tell the story of the baptism of Jesus. Matthew does. Mark does. Luke does. Describes in detail what happened. All John the Apostle does is give John the Baptist testimony of the story which I think at this point is even more powerful John the Baptist saying I saw the spirit descending upon him I experi—I saw this take place in front of me the Holy Spirit descending and remaining upon him and the Lord told me this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit this is the one through whom this whole thing works he's the guy that's important Because the Hebrew prophetic scriptures tell us, Isaiah 11 verse 2, that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength and knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the Holy Spirit will rest on Messiah. John says, I saw it happen. Isaiah 41, verse 2, Behold, My servant, whom I uphold, My chosen one, in whom My soul delights, I have put My Spirit upon Him. Remember what we were talking about before? The Holy Spirit comes alongside, the Holy Spirit indwells, and the Holy Spirit comes upon? Let me ask you this. Before Jesus was baptized, did He have the indwelling Holy Spirit? Yes! He had to! He had to. It was His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. I mean, it's like saying, before Rick was baptized, did Rick have the Spirit of Rick? <laughs> Let me tell you, if I didn't have the Spirit of Rick before I was baptized, I'd be a lump of flesh. <laughs> I wouldn't move. I'd be... Jesus had the Spirit because the Spirit was His Spirit. But in His baptism, we see something marvelous. We see the Holy Spirit now coming upon someone who has the Spirit of God. Why was Jesus baptized? To fulfill all righteousness, right? It's not because He needed to. It was to show us, this is the deal. Here's how it works. In the flesh, I have the Spirit of God. So do you the moment you receive me as Lord and Savior. But there's more. And that is the Holy Spirit coming upon you. Just as the Holy Spirit came upon me in my baptism. I know I'm putting words in Jesus' mouth, but... The Spirit comes upon Him in His baptism and thus begins the ministry of Jesus. Now empowered by the very same Spirit who indwelled Him. I know it's a little kind of like, wow, mind-boggling. Well, we're talking about God. So it should be a little mind-boggling. But the moment of recognition. Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me over and over and over the messianic prophet Isaiah says the spirit will be on him you're going to know him because the spirit comes upon him I will set my spirit on him Jesus even saying of himself the spirit of the Lord is upon me and John says I saw it happen moment of recognition he didn't know it was him until that moment and then it all became crystal clear why hadn't John had that moment yet And when they were playing Legos, and Jesus Legos just miraculously were built. (laughs) Maybe you've heard about or read some of the extracurricular uh, writings, um, the uh, writings that followed after scripture, and there are all kinds of stories drummed up about Jesus' childhood that we don't have in the Gospels. There's one about him making clay pigeons, you know, with the other kids, and Jesus' clay pigeons flew away. You know, why hadn't John seen something in Jesus' life that told him, he's the guy? I think it's because of the normalcy of Jesus. Because Jesus, as a kid growing up in Nazareth, was a kid growing up in Nazareth. There was nothing different about him. He was Joseph and Mary's son. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. It wasn't like as a young child he walked by and everybody went, oh, sweet little lamb. Look at him. look Do you see how he glows? He just glows. No, it was nothing like that. He was a kid running down the streets of Nazareth like anybody else. And you would not have known anything different. In fact, the people of his home crowd, hometown crowd didn't know any different. Matthew 13:54. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, and they were astonished. They said, "Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers?" Side note, the Holy Spirit. Verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not uh, his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and and Simon and Judas? They're all here? See, nobody saw it. And what that tells me about Jesus is there was something something meekly unassuming about Him. He was just a humble guy. He wasn't calling attention to Himself. That wasn't why He came. He came to be the Lamb of God. He came as the perfect sacrifice. And there's something mysteriously wonderful in that. When Jesus says, take My yoke upon you and learn of Me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Matthew 11.29 Because that's who He was. I've told you before, that is Jesus' singular self-description. I'm meek. And He was so meek that John and, and his hometown crowd and his mother and his brothers and everybody else, no one knew. It was just Jesus. He's just one of the family. But that raises another important question. If Jesus was so normal, why, when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, why in that moment did it suddenly click for John the Baptist? Imagine being there. Imagine being John in that moment. You've just laid Jesus back in the water. You bring Him out of the water. The Holy Spirit comes upon Him and all of a sudden it's like a flashback to the entire life of Jesus and you realize that for all Jesus normalcy he had perfect integrity of course he's the son of god of course he is flipping back through the pages of his menace- memory John must have realized how Jesus lived what Jesus did he never did anything wrong he never hurt anybody. He was never never gave a harsh word. He was always compassionate. He was always gracious. He was always a great kid. And he was such a great kid that nobody even thought that he was a great kid. You know, he wasn't like the kid who, you know, Mary didn't have the bumper sticker on the back of the camel. My child is the son of God. I mean that didn't they, they looked at him and he was just so good. And for John in that moment to see the integrity, to consider the integrity of, of Jesus. Think about this. John the Apostle and his brother James were first cousins to Jesus. They didn't see it. They didn't know He was Messiah. But when He was introduced to them as Messiah, yeah, of course, James and Jude, Jesus' own brothers who grew up with Him, who saw Him around the house. They didn't believe at first until they started processing it and thinking about it and realizing, yeah, He is the spotless Lamb. He is the Son of God. And so, verse 34, John says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. I told you a couple weeks ago, Son is huios. It's not offspring. It's not created one. The huios of God, the Son, it speaks of the inheritance. It speaks of the right of the firstborn. It speaks of the authority. And the huios in a family was equal to the Father. The Son of God. Well, quickly... Verse 35. Again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. John will say it twice. And these are the two times. In verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And I told you on Sunday, that was John's ministry fulfilled. They heard John speak, they saw him point to Jesus and they didn't keep following John, they followed Jesus. And that's our calling. That is our ministry. Not to get people to follow after the Bridge Fellowship. Not to get people to become disciples of ours. But to point them to Jesus. That they might follow Him. One of these two young men was named Andrew. What about the other one? We'll talk about Andrew in just a minute. The other of these two goes unnamed. I think it's John. I think the second guy here who was an apostle or a follower actually of John the Baptist, John and Andrew, Andrew and John knew each other long before they became apostles together. And I think John, I, don't, I can't prove it, but I think it's an interesting thought. Verse 38, and Jesus turned and saw them following Andrew and the other guy. But it also, by the way, it goes to John's method of writing this gospel. Remember, he does not name himself a single time throughout the entire gospel. In chapter 21 verse 2 he mentions the sons of Zebedee of which he was one. But he never uses his name and he never uses the name of James his brother. Not a single time. So it would make sense that John here would say two were following and one was named Andrew. And I'm not going to tell you the other name. And Jesus turned and saw them following and he said to them, What do you seek? And this is the first time we hear Jesus speak in the Gospel of John. What do you seek? He turned around and he saw them. What do you seek? That's the question. How about you? Why are you here tonight? Why are you here tonight? On a Wednesday? In the middle of winter? In the north wet? Why are you here? What are you looking for? What's this all about? What do you seek? Jesus says. And they said to him... Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now if it's Roman time, that would be 10 a.m. If it's Jewish reckoning, it would be 4 p.m. So we don't know exactly when, but they came and stayed with him throughout that day. Let me ask you a question. When you read this, does it sound like church? Does it sound like a religious exercise? What do you seek? Where are you staying? Come on. Come along, guys. Does it sound like study hall? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you who I am and uh, explain to you where I'm staying, but first we've got a list of questions we need to go through together. We've got a theology you need to get down. We've got a language you've got to understand. Jesus just says, what are you guys, what are you looking for? And they say, where are you staying? And he says, come on, I'll show you. See, that's how Jesus enters into a relationship with people. He never says, study hard, and then I'll let you know. He says, come on, I'll show you. Just start walking with me. If someone ever asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You tell them, start walking with Jesus. Because I guarantee your experience is going to be a little different than mine. Just walk with him. He'll show you. And I know that's a little loose, but it works. If anyone wants to know how to be a Christian, don't hand them the book of rules. Do not give them the doctrinal statement of your church. Say, just get to know Jesus. He'll show you. Walk with Him. Come and see. Jesus offers one thing here, and one thing only. His presence. His presence. He always does. There's a little word here. I love it. It's used 112 times in the New Testament. And John uses it 66 times in his Gospel alone. So that's kind of significant. The word is minnow in the Greek. It's not like the SS minnow of Gilligan's Island. Minnow. The word minnow means, is translated, stay. We see it three times. Where are you? Staying? And they came and saw where he was staying, verse 39, and they stayed with him that day. And John loves this word. He uses it over and over and over. Stay, minnow, why is it a big word? It's also translated remain and abide. Abide with me. Look ahead to the night of Jesus' betrayal. John 14, verse 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And they said, where are you staying? Where do you abide? Jesus said, come and see. Abide with Me. Stay with Me. Be with Me. After Jesus' resurrection, before His, His ascension, He said in Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Jesus has this thing about abiding, about staying He does not leave. He does not forsake. And the promise remains for us. As Paul wrote, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord of the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. We will minnow with the Father. We will stay with Jesus. We abide with Him. And again, back to this whole walk of faith, the, the key to following Jesus is sticking with Him. It's just staying where He is. Amen. It's being where He is. It's, it's being about the things that, that He's about. You know, it's not a formula. It's not a religion. We've said that a billion times over the last decade. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. You've probably heard that in other places. Don't let that be trite in your life. It's huge. Stay with Him. But I don't know how to be a Christian. Stay with Him. But I don't know what He expects me to do. Stay with Him. You don't think He's going to tell you? If you will remain, if you will abide with Him? I love that old hymn, Abide with Me. Fast falls the eventide. Just abide with Me. In the morning and the evening, always be with Me. Verse 40 going on. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which that's Aramaic, it's translated Peter or Petros in the Greek remember Peter is never called Petra rock he's called Petros pebble rocky little guy maybe a chip off the rock but certainly not the rock himself Jesus is the rock but why doesn't Andrew get a special name? he saw Jesus first right? he's the one who went and got Peter and brought him to Jesus and Jesus gives Peter a special name and Andrew's You know what Andrew is called throughout the New Testament? Peter's brother. That's his claim to fame. Oh, I'm Peter's brother. Well, I guess if you're the brother of the Pope, that might be... He's just Peter's brother. Andrew, Peter's brother. Andrew, Peter's brother. You see this over and over and over. It's his only qualifying description. And I love that it doesn't seem to matter to Andrew. Andrew just keeps doing what he does. Well, what does Andrew do? He brings people to Jesus. He brought Peter to Jesus. In John chapter 6, we're going to see Andrew bring a little boy with five loaves and two fishes to Jesus. While everyone else is scratching their heads, how are we going to feed all these people? Andrew has a bright idea. Well, this kid's got a sack lunch. That gets us started. (laughs) He brought him to Jesus. In John chapter 12, it is Andrew along with Philip who brings a group of Greeks, Gentiles, to Jesus. Man, that's kind of unheard of. You don't bring Greeks to a rabbi. What are you thinking, Andrew? I, I, just, I want everybody to know him. And I don't care if I'm called Simon's brother or not. <laughs> he just brings people to Jesus. And you know what? When we recognize Jesus for who He is, and when we stay with Him, when we abide with Him, He becomes our identity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what other people call me, and, and all I really want to be known for is Him. And all I really want to do is introduce people to Him. You don't need to know about me. You need to know about Him. And that was Andrew. I love that about him. Verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, son of Joseph? Why does he, why does he say that? That's what he said, for one thing. Okay. The Bible says it because that happens to be what Philip said. This is Jesus, the son of Joseph, and we think he's the one. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. At that point, that's all Philip understood, was that Jesus was the son of Joseph. Philip would later learn quite a bit more about who Jesus really was. When Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? He who has seen me, John 14, has seen the Father. Not Joseph, but the Father God. But at this point, it's early, at the very front end of the ministry, Philip doesn't know. So he calls him son of Joseph. But I love Nathaniel's response, perhaps you do too. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We might translate, can anything good come out of Cedro? No offense. It's not that Nazareth was a bad place, it's just Nazareth? Messiah doesn't come out of Nazareth, does He? The Galilee? I mean, that's that's like Galilee of the Gentiles. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You know, that's where Messiah should come from. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He says kind of tongue-in-cheek. And Philip says, note what Philip says, Come and see. Well, he's already sounding like Jesus, isn't he? Where are you saying, staying, Jesus? Come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Philip doesn't try to coax or cajole or convince Nathaniel. He just says, come see. We think he's the one. How do you know? Check him out. I have such confidence in this. Maybe you've picked that up, but I I can so easily sit here and when I teach the Word, I can say, look, don't believe me. Read it for yourself. All that conversation we had earlier about baptism, you don't have to agree with me. That's fine. You probably ought to agree with scripture, probably ought to agree with the Lord, but I'm confident in His Word. And I'm confident if someone will really come to Jesus, they're gonna get saved. It really isn't hard work, folks. Come and see. You go to that, 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 the church up on North Whidbey, right? Why do you go there? No, we talk about Jesus there. Jesus is there? Come and see. Come check him out. That's how it works. One by one, brother to brother, friend to friend. Andrew got Simon, Philip tags Nathaniel, and now we've got four guys walking with Jesus. Nathaniel's there. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And all these guys had said, come and see the Lord. Last thing on this, just remember, evangelism is not rocket science. It is not difficult. It is not clever slogans. Evangelism is not training programs. That if you haven't been through one, you really ought not mess with it. You know, it's not market strategies. Evangelism is saying, "Come see Jesus. I know him. I want you to know him. Come on, come on. I'll buy you lunch. Come on." You know, it's simple. It's just relationship. For oh, ten and a half years, we never had a sign. We never advertised the existence of the Bridge Christian Fellowship. The sum total of our advertising right now is that flimsy, pathetic little sign out by the road. <laughs> people keep coming. And when I'm asked, why do people go to the bridge? I have to say, honestly, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> There's no strategy. There's no marketing campaign. You know what it is? You told someone, come here about Jesus. Keep doing it. Keep telling people about Jesus. Keep inviting them to hear about Him. It's very simple. We are not like the many, Paul says, Second 2 Corinthians 2.17, peddling the Word of God. We're not selling this. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. In evangelism, in three simple words, come and see. Come and see. Verse 47. If I can find it. There it is. Jesus. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him I love this. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit or no guile. This guy doesn't he's not working angles. This is a good guy. Jesus says this. And well that word deceit, guile, it's dolos in the Greek, and it, it means angle. You know, it means. Guile. It means someone looking for an edge, someone looking for something. I need you to understand this? Nathaniel was the right. If Nathaniel had been going to the Bridge Fellowship, I'd ask him to be a shepherd. He's the guy you're looking for. He's a man of integrity. He, he's, I mean, called out by Jesus. Here, here is a man of true integrity. Here's a guy you can trust. And he was never named among the apostles. Judas was. But not Nathaniel. Well, apparently Jesus was just a bad judge of character. Jesus must have made the wrong choice. Maybe He meant to say Nathaniel, but Judas was standing there and, and they got confused and Jesus didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so He just let Judas know. Jesus knew exactly what He was doing. Why was Judas called then instead of a guy like Nathaniel? Maybe we'll talk about that in a later study. But the point is... Jesus called Judas. So he had his purposes. But he didn't call Nathanael. That's okay. That's okay. Nathanael didn't really care one way or the other. And in John chapter 21, we find Nathanael still there. He's still a disciple. He's still following. He didn't need to be one of the apostles to follow Jesus. We don't need titles We don't need special recognition to follow Jesus. We just need to follow Him. Go where He goes. Stay with Jesus. Verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Now I've always thought that was funny. Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Well thank you very much. How do you know that? I don't think that's what Nathaniel was saying. You know, I don't think he was saying, wow, he recognizes what a perfect guy I am. <laughs> I think what Nathaniel's just saying here is, wait a minute. Obviously, I mean, you're calling me out. You know something about me. We've never met. How do you know who I am? What are you, how do you know anything about me? Jesus answered and said to him, Watch this. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. <laughs> 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 and Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God! You are the King of Israel! <laughs> what? That makes no sense! <laughs> I saw you under the fig tree. Oh, oh I'm not worthy. This, I, I've read over this a thousand times in my life, and I have never understood it. Why is Nathaniel so impressed? Jesus saw him under a tree, man. And Nathanael turns around and starts jumping up and down. You're the the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And Jesus said, because I said I saw you under the fig tree? (laughs) Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Why was Nathanael so impressed calling Him the Son of God? calling Him the King of Israel. I want you to understand that John, in writing this Gospel, is incredibly intentional. Every story, every event, every testimony given here are for the purpose of pointing out one exclusive truth, Jesus is God. That's the purpose for this Gospel. So if you get into any corner as you're studying John, and you go... Why is this here? What does this mean? Start there. Start with the understanding that it's John's intention that you see the divinity of Christ. And if you start there, things begin to open up. G. Campbell Morgan said in this Gospel, only those crises in the life of the Lord which are closely related to His deity are recorded. For example, the Incarnation, the Word became flesh. Or the Crucifixion is mentioned. The resurrection is mentioned. I would include in that list Jesus seeing Nathaniel under the fig tree. This is a supernatural event, gang. There's something huge going on here. It's amazing, and we're going to talk about it Sunday morning. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. And it is my prayer, Lord, that we will stay with Jesus. Just stay with Him. I can hear you speak in those words. Stay with me, gang. Abide with me. Walk with me. Lord, that is the sum total of our faith right there, to be in the presence of Jesus. And I pray you will help us to do that. Lord, we're sheep. We stray, we wander, but we desperately need your presence and pray You will hold us close. Thank You for the promise in John 10 that You have us in Your hand and no one can grab us out of Your hand and take us away. Lord Jesus, hold tight. Keep us close. And may we be proclaimers of those three simple words, come and see. And may people come and see the Lord. Thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.